Welcome to Highlands Church Audio Sermons. Today, January 24th, 2021, we continue our new series titled Biblical Worldview. Today's sermon, The Worldview Next Door, will be taught to us by Pastor Brendan Anderson. Enjoy. It is great to be with you. If we haven't met, my name is Brendan. I'm the weekend services pastor here at Highlands Church. I am honored to be a part of the teaching team for this series, and and thanks to Pastor Bob for giving me the opportunity to be a part of Biblical Worldview. We're in week three of our series, um, and I know what you're thinking to start. You're like, hold on a second. Isn't that like the musician guy? Like... (laughs) Isn't that a guitar guy, grab a saxophone guy? Like, he's the one who's going to take us through these other biblical, these other worldviews that are non-biblical, like opposed, sometimes hostile to the Bible. Like this guy. Well, the only consolation I can give you comes from, believe it or not, the Bible. In 2 Chronicles, there is the story of King Jehoshaphat of the nation of Israel. King Jehoshaphat, he was faced with two massive invading armies coming to wipe Israel out. I mean, insurmountable odds, they are toast. And King Jehoshaphat, though, he does the right thing. He prays, he seeks God's will. And this is what happens. 2 Chronicles chapter 20, starting in verse 21, up on the screen, says this, After consulting the people, Jehoshaphat appointed men to sing to the Lord and to praise him for the splendor of his holiness as they went out at the head of the army, saying, give thanks to the Lord for his love endures forever. And as they began to sing and praise, the Lord set ambushes against the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir who were invading Judah, and they were defeated. Church, the Bible is clear. When the battle looks unwinnable, you send in the musicians first. All right? Now, I've loved this series so far. It has been one reminder after another of the foundation that we have in God's word, the Bible, of how to navigate life. So if you've missed either of the other weeks uh, thus far, I would invite you to please, please go watch them. It really is one message over four weeks, and those are so important. So important so that I want to give you a quick recap before we jump into what we're talking about today. In week one, uh, Pastor Thomas was up here. He taught us about the Bible, how we can know it's true, not just true, but how we can know it's the very word of God. We learn that it's a book unlike any other in human history. It is textually accurate, historically accurate, prophetically accurate. All right, Jesus himself trusted the Old Testament of his Bible as a part and foundation of his ministry and work when he was here on earth and quoted it often. The Bible is unmatched in its ability to transform the lives of the people who read it, who study it, and do what it says. And church, I hope that's you. I hope that's you. That was week one. Week two, just last week, Pastor Jeff was up here and he was sharing with us the biblical worldview. And it's really important we get this right and review it because we're gonna study today some non-biblical worldviews and we wanna make sure that we don't get knocked off track. So you ready? Buckle up, here we go. Biblical worldview, it's this. God is the creator of all things. God is eternal, he is perfect. We just sang that. And he is the source and sustainer of everything in our universe. And we humans are his creation. God created us, male and female, created our form and function, Jeff taught us last week. And we are uniquely created in his image. And because we're created in his image, that means all human life is sacred in the image of God. Whether you're 95 years old, whether you have special needs, whether you're a tiny baby newly conceived in the womb, all life is sacred 
created in the image of God, human life. And as people created by God, we're given the purpose of having dominion over the earth, to cultivate it, to subdue it, to be fruitful and multiply. Why? Well, to worship and glorify God in everything we do. That's the meaning and purpose of life. And because God is the creator, he is the ultimate and final authority for how life is supposed to work, what's right and what's wrong, and how we can flourish as humans. And he wrote it down for us in his word, the Bible. But there was a problem. It wasn't long before the first people, Adam and Eve, decided that they wanted to decide those things. They wanted to decide for themselves what was right and wrong to do, and they chose to do the thing that God said not to do. That choice is called sin, and with it always eventually comes suffering and death. But God wasn't done with humanity yet. Sin needed to be dealt with because God is perfectly just. There needed to be a penalty for wrongdoing. So. There is no amount, though, of good that we as his people can do to achieve the perfect standard of God. So God himself made a way. He came down in the form of his son, Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man, to live among us, to teach us about his kingdom, and ultimately to pay the penalty for our sin, all sin, once and for all, through his death on a cross. And because of Jesus' death and resurrection from the dead, we can have a renewed and right relationship with God only through belief, faith, and trust in Jesus Christ. And when we're in a right relationship with God, we respond to that gift of grace by living the way that he calls us to live, to live lives marked by the fruit of his Holy Spirit, which now lives inside of us. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Right? And while this faith in Christ is not going to keep us from experiencing suffering in this lost world of sin, this world is broken, but it's Christ who gives us his strength to endure it, and not just to endure it, but to find joy in the midst of it. You might say, how? I, I need that joy. This, this world's broken. How can I find that joy? I'm glad you asked. We're starting a new series in the book of Philippians in two weeks, and we're gonna talk all about it, having joy no matter what the circumstance. It's a series called Uncommon Joy, and it's gonna be awesome. But we can have this joy right now because we know that this life is just a shadow of the glory to come. When our life on this earth comes to an end, if we are in Christ, we have the promise of eternal life in perfect relationship with God in his kingdom forever. Church, are you with me so far? Yes, okay. So, before we go on, I wanna say this. If any of that recap, that quick recap, doesn't make any sense to you or causes you to have questions, um, don't be afraid of that. All right, don't be afraid of that. It's, it's good and right to have questions about God's plan for humanity. But I will say this, don't let those questions linger. Don't let them linger. Ask them. Find a devoted follower of Jesus Christ. Ask them. Ask one of the pastors on staff. Write us an email. Join a small group. Get into one-on-one -on -one discipleship. Meet with somebody where you can open God's word, learn his answers to your questions, and grow and deepen your faith. That's how it works to be a Christian. All right, what we can't do, though, as Christians is pick and choose. We can't pick and choose. In Acts 20, 27, the Apostle Paul makes it very clear the importance of what he calls the whole counsel of God. It's the whole Bible. It doesn't work to believe just part of it, okay? If we set a standard different from God's, that's no longer a biblical worldview, it's no longer Christianity, and that can only eventually lead to sin. 
a great book that has helped me uh, and bring clarity even to the biblical worldview and understanding uh, the depths of God's word. It's a book by C.S. Lewis called Mere Christianity. It's a collection of talks that C.S. Lewis gave during World War II in London while they were being bombed uh, by the Germans to bring hope to that world and community. It really lays out through the principles of logic and reason and understanding the basics of Christianity in just such an easy way to digest. I would recommend it. We've got some out at Info Central. If you're interested in uh, checking that out, I would recommend it. It is helpful, helpful in that biblical worldview. But today, we are gonna look at some other worldviews that people around us have. If someone doesn't have a biblical worldview, how do they see the world? Right? How do they process the things that happen in the world? How do they navigate the big questions of life, of meaning and purpose and destiny? But there's something else I want to make super, super clear. We don't learn other worldviews to help us win arguments. I'm going to say that again. We don't learn about other worldviews to help us win arguments. All right, instead, this is point one. We learn about other worldviews to be able to better love our neighbor with the good news of the gospel to love our neighbor, so that you know how to think biblically. So when a new cultural crisis happens, and it will happen, just give it a couple of days, right? New cultural crisis happens, you're not running to Instagram or Twitter or turning on the news to get 50 people's hot takes of how you should think and feel about something. There's only one hot take that matters, and it's God's. It's the only one that matters. And when we can see the world through a biblical lens, then we're in the perfect position to reach out in love to the people around us with the gospel message. First Peter 3.15 says it this way. Peter says, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. I love this first for a couple of reasons. First, it implies that people can tell that you have hope in you. Now, if some crisis happens in our world and you're immediately on social media and you're typing like the sky is falling, you might not be projecting the pinnacle of hope and security to the people around you, right? So if you're wondering, man, why hasn't anybody asked me about all this hope I have in me? Might wanna take a look at your content, all right? And see if people can see hope. Two, I love this because gentleness and respect. Gentleness and respect. Church, does our world have a lot of gentleness and respect in it right now? No, not a lot. And we can't go pretending that we can change what respect means. If we're having a conversation with someone, if we're texting somebody, we're talking to somebody in person, and they leave that conversation feeling disrespected, then we missed it. It's on us. They missed it. Gentleness and respect. A good friend of mine reminded me in an article he wrote for the Gospel Coalition uh, just last year, he said, as Christians, we are not at war with our ideological opponents, we are at war for them. We're at war for them. We're not called to fight the way the world fights with arguments and hot takes and comment strings. Instead, we are called to love. We're called to love. You say, well, what does that look like? 1 Corinthians 13, four and five says it this way. The Bible is describing love here. It describes it as patient, kind. Love doesn't seek its own way. It's not arrogant. It's not rude. It doesn't envy or boast. So please, the next time you are about to post something, a comment or send an email, whatever it is, open up 1 Corinthians 13 first. Compare what you've written with what's in 1 Corinthians' definition of love and see if it matches. If you violate any of those things, then just hit delete. Just hit delete. Try love instead. Because here's the thing, the world isn't full of worldviews, the world is full of people. 
Like we just sang about in Good, Good Father, people who are made in the image of God, people who are searching for answers, they're searching for answers. Everyone has a different reason for why they have the worldview that they do, and that's a great place to start a conversation. Not an argument, a conversation. Marked by what? Love. With what? Gentleness and respect. Oh man, that's hard. That is hard. But we can do it through Christ's strength. So let's take a look. We're gonna look at some categories. You can read, uh, when it comes to other worldviews, you can read books about a lot of isms. Atheism, humanism, pluralism, relativism, universalism, it it goes on and on. But it's rare that you're gonna have a conversation with somebody about an ism, right? Nobody's kind of taking the time to really flesh their worldview out in most cases. I've never been in my driveway and had my neighbor roll over and be like, hey, Brendan, you know, I've been thinking about pluralism lately. I don't know, maybe I live in the wrong neighborhood. Is this what you're saying in like Desert Mountain and stuff? But in my neighborhood, that doesn't happen, okay? Instead, we're gonna try and get a little bit more practical to where people are with their thinking and their worldviews. We're gonna look at some worldview categories to see how they try and answer the big questions of life. And hopefully, we're gonna come to an understanding where our opportunities will be to share a biblical worldview so that we can love our neighbors well. Also, in the brief time that we have to cover it, I wanna present these respectfully, right? There's nothing more frustrating than when you meet somebody and they attack Christianity by pointing out Christians who aren't living a biblical worldview and then they use that behavior as the way to disprove Christianity. That never leads to a productive discussion. You can't claim that Christianity itself is false because imperfect people are practicing it. All right, so as we talk about these other worldviews, I'm gonna do my best to represent them as well as I can out of what? Gentleness and respect, all right? So at their core, most non-biblical worldviews are gonna come down to variations on these three categories. Now, these aren't scientific categories. These aren't academic categories. These are just groupings that we've done to kind of help us think through how other worldviews see our world. So the first category we're gonna call humanist or atheistic. Humanist or atheistic. In this worldview, there is no God at all. There's no God at all, or at least there's very little chance there is. But... Don't worry, we don't need him because humans will eventually, given enough time, explain everything through our science and discovery. I mean, look how far we've come, right? Most people in this line of thought would agree that the universe did have a beginning, certainly. Some would call it the Big Bang or something similar. And at that moment, all the matter in the universe expanded outward, eventually arriving at the place that it is today and still expanding. This worldview also leans toward the theories surrounding evolution. Life on Earth began because the conditions on this planet happened to be conducive to the combination of protocells and liquid to form proteins in these building blocks of life. And this life then has been evolving ever since, in some cases evolving into extremely complex forms like plants and animals. Humans then, humans are just a natural consequence of this evolution, no more unique than any other species of animal. When it comes to morality in this worldview or the idea of what's right and wrong, because there's no God who provides any laws or a standard, it's up to humanity then to determine for itself what rules and laws contribute to human flourishing. And in these worldviews, death is the end of our consciousness, full stop. Right? They would say there's no concrete evidence of anything after, so there must not be. We should just pursue the best possible life we can with the time we have because this is all there is. 
Now, some worldviews that would follow this type of thinking are atheism, certainly, but also humanism. You'll hear a lot about humanism lately, the idea that humans have the ability and responsibility to lead ethical lives of personal fulfillment that aspire to the greater good. Of course, for that to work, everyone's gonna have to come to a consensus on what the greater good is. Historically, that hasn't always worked out so well. Another worldview in this category might be scientism. Now be careful, I didn't say science. I said scientism, where pursuing the discovery of how our world works through science is gonna give us all the answers and context we need, even for morality. These are the folks who will tell you, oh no, I don't believe in God, I believe in science. Now be careful, Christians, please don't get knocked off track here. Science is not an enemy. Science is not an enemy. The narrative that Christianity is harmed by science or against science is a false one. It's a false one. Science is the beautiful and noble pursuit of understanding God's creation through the process of the scientific method, right? Hypothesis, testing, and repeatable results. This is important to understand and also something that those who don't believe in a creator God, they tend to gloss this part over. The only reason we can even do science in the first place is because our universe is so carefully and finely tuned and well-ordered that our experiments are gonna yield repeatable results, almost like someone designed it that way, right? But scientism, scientism, the belief that we don't need God because science will explain it all and take care of all of our context has become a worldview and belief system of its own. Now, as I describe these categories, hopefully uh, there are some bells that start to go off in your mind. You might say, oh, that's not what God's word says, or your even logic and reasoning centers will perk up and say, I've got some questions. Because in this category of atheistic or godless worldviews, there are some big questions that become a struggle to answer. If there is no creator and nothing exists outside of the universe, then how did all the matter in the universe get here in the first place? How, how did something come from nothing? And if all life, including ours, is just the product of matter simply evolving over time and natural selection, where do the concepts of morality come from? Humanists would say we develop morality for the good of humanity so that we can continue on, but who's good? And who gets to decide? As we look at these categories, we're gonna also look at what the Bible would view this category as, the context that the Bible gives us. And for this worldview, we would look at Romans chapter one and verse 18, up on the screen, midway through verse 18, the Bible would call this the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. The Bible says God has revealed himself in everything that he has made. So that's our first category. Next category is nearly the opposite in a lot of ways. And it's what we're gonna call works-based monotheism. That's a mouthful. Monotheism, mono meaning one, theism meaning God, and works-based view of God. In, the, in these worldviews, uh, there is a God. There's a God who created everything and he is knowable and that God has a certain standard that they want us to live up to as revealed in a religious text. These texts give us instructions about what's right and what's wrong and they tell us how we should live. 
The idea is then that we have to follow God's rules the best we can so that when we die, we go to a good place and not a less good place, but especially not the bad place, right? This worldview would fit religions like Islam or Mormonism with some variation and some others, all right? We would call these worldviews works-based because we need to do a certain type or a certain amount of good works to make our way toward God. These worldviews most often don't see Jesus as God himself, but instead either a lesser being or a prophet or just a man. And because of that, in these worldviews, Jesus' sacrifice isn't enough. It's not enough, and therein lies some of the issue. The Quran from Islam, the Quran would say it this way, chapter six, verse 164, says no soul gets except what it is due, and no soul bears the burdens of another. Then to your Lord is your return, and he will inform you regarding your disputes. What does that mean? You get what you deserve. You get what you deserve. The Book of Mormon would say it this way, the Book of Mormon, 2nd Nephi 25:23, up on the screen. For we labor diligently to write, to persuade our children and also our brethren to believe in Christ and to be reconciled to God. For we know that it is by grace that we are saved after all we can do. What does that mean? Well, it means that I have something to do with my salvation. I have to have certain works The problem is the Bible tells me, especially in Ephesians 2, that I'm dead. I'm dead in my sin, right? Jesus and I aren't partners in salvation. I don't bring anything to that table. It's not a potluck where like I bring salad and dessert and Jesus brings the main dish. Jesus prepares the whole table. I just receive it. I just receive it. Now, some of you who grew up in even some Christian traditions or traditions that would identify with Christianity might be saying, well, hold on a second, though. Isn't that where Christianity lives, right? I mean, uh, uh, one God, holy book, follow his rules, get into heaven. Christianity, right? No. No, not quite. We have to hold firm to the true gospel. As the Bible tells us, no amount of good works will allow us to achieve the perfect standard of God. It's only by his grace through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that we can have that restored relationship. We don't climb up to God. He came down to lift us up by his grace and grace alone. The Bible would describe it this way. Check out Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 11. It says, and every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Verse 14, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. What does that mean? Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. Our last category of worldview then is where studies would show most of America sits, actually. This is what you're probably most likely to encounter if someone has a non-biblical worldview. We're gonna call it theistic or spiritual. Theistic just means God is involved and spiritual. Spiritual, or you might even say new age in there. These worldviews would say, yes, there is a God or gods, or something higher power, something like that that created the universe and got everything started to get something out of nothing. But ultimately, these worldviews would say it's up to us to figure out who or what God is. In some worldviews, it's each individual's decision to find the spirituality or God through some process. In others, it would be through some community or group together. 
And because these worldviews are based on people's own discovery, the ideas of right and wrong and how to live a good life come down to whatever is anybody's best idea at that time, right? They pick and choose, pick and choose. And oftentimes, in these worldviews, different people can have different ideas about good and bad stuff, and that's totally acceptable, to a point, to a point. Now, if you're thinking, do people really believe in this whole create-your-own-truth thing? Well, in a recent survey, over 60% of Americans agreed with the statement that, quote, religious belief is a matter of personal opinion and not about objective truth. And get this, over 30% of evangelical Christians said that they agreed with that, too. That's sobering. But I think I might know why it's happening, because we all want to be seen as tolerant, right? We all want to be tolerant. It's easy to get distracted by this idea of tolerance because our culture has attempted to redefine it. Tolerance used to mean that if you and I had a different idea about something, we would agree to disagree, but we could still be friends. I mean, I know this sounds crazy, but it is entirely possible to love someone without also embracing the sinful nature and sinful aspects of their worldview. You might say, well, how? How do you do that? Well, love doesn't equal approval. All right, I love my kids. I love them unconditionally as best I can to show them the love of Christ but I do not approve of every single thing they do. And guess what? My kids were in here first service. I asked them, they don't approve of everything I do either. (laughs) But they love me. They love me unconditionally. Love doesn't mean approval, but love does mean patience. It does mean kindness, right? Today there are many in our world who want tolerance to equal acceptance or affirmation. So if you and I disagree on something and I don't support, advocate, or celebrate your view, then I am intolerant. The problem is someone advocating for that type of tolerance themselves ends up being intolerant because they're refusing to allow you to hold a different view. It's a mess. It's a mess. It can lead people to such different and convoluted ways of thinking. In fact, we've been talking about this uh, book by Erwin Lutzer lately. If you want to do more of a deep dive on what's going culturally on around this issue, it's called We Will Not Be Silenced. Again, we've got some more copies out at Info Central. You're welcome to go out there and pick up a copy. It is a great uh, perspective and dive in on that biblically as we look at our culture. And as a culture, we're actually intolerant of a lot of things, right? I can't go to Safeway and take a loaf of bread without paying for it, right? Even if I can show that I really, really need it and Safeway is not gonna be hurting their profit margin one bit by me taking it, we call it stealing. We don't tolerate it. So whether people were admitted or not, we all have this line that we draw. So who gets to decide what gets tolerated and what doesn't? This is a challenge within this type of worldview. If God doesn't draw the line, then I get to, right? And instead of life being about the pursuit of God's holiness, life becomes about the pursuit of my happiness. And the slope can get slippery. I get to choose what parts of any religion are true or parts of different religions and combine them together. So that means I get to choose which rules are the good ones and I get to choose which rules are the bad ones, which means I get to choose things like when I want to be faithful in my marriage because after all, it's just about my happiness, right? So I also get to choose things like my gender if I feel like it. I get to choose which people's opinions are more valuable than others and which ones should be canceled, right? Because they think differently than me or maybe they look different than I do. 
which actually means I'm choosing how much worth someone else has. So if we're choosing how much worth a person has, then we end up in a place where we're assigning greater worth to those who are, say, born versus those who are unborn. And so now we get to choose whether an unborn human life can live or die. Remember when I said at the beginning that the counsel of God is the entire Bible? Church, this is so important. If we think we can choose which parts we should follow and which parts we shouldn't, that road does not lead to human flourishing. All right, it leads to sin. And the consequence of sin, eventually, is always death. Now, in these theistic and spiritual worldviews, there is typically a recognition of some kind of existence after death. Most would say that when we die, we wanna make sure that our good deeds, however we define those, outweigh our bad deeds, however we define those, so that, the, that God or the gods or this higher power ensures that we go to a good place and not a bad place. And there are many worldviews and religions that have variations on this. We might also call it pluralism or relativism because in the end, these worldviews are relative to the person practicing them. Everyone is deciding for themselves what's in and what's out, doing the best they can to build a life under whatever God it is they think they're operating under or whatever God they've created for themselves. So how does the Bible view this type of worldview? Check out 2 Timothy chapter four. The Apostle Paul writes, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Church, don't let anyone try and convince you that this book, that the Bible is outdated and irrelevant. This is a better descriptor of human nature than has ever been or will ever be written. All right? So now that we've covered those three major categories, I wanna ask, what's something that they potentially share, all these categories? Well, to some extent, they can work, right? Sometimes, they can work really well. I mean, throughout history, these worldviews have led to incredible amounts of discovery and humanitarian work and the advancement of human understanding. I mean, we shouldn't shy away from the fact that atheists and humanists and relativists and Buddhists and Muslims and Mormons, they've all done good things. Right, to suggest otherwise would be to ignore reality and also would be disrespectful. The Bible even calls this something, it calls it common grace. Matthew chapter five, verse 45, says God makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. But you're probably also thinking, well, yeah, but they've also, all those worldviews have also done some really bad things. And you're right, you're right. Variations on those worldviews we just talked about have led to some horrific atrocities, a lot of which have happened just over the last 100 years. But again, engaging with people who hold a different worldview by pointing out its worst historical applications isn't always helpful. You wouldn't want it done to your worldview, and so as we're gonna see in a minute, finding common ground is a much better place to start. And common ground is always possible, because all these worldviews can work to a point, and that's the point, all right? I mean, when things are going well in your life, any worldview will do, right? I mean, I have a good job, my boss is cool, my car is working great, I can afford my mortgage, my wife and I are getting along, my kids are behaving, uh, there's money in my retirement account. Heck, my worldview could be that the world was created by a pepperoni pizza named Ralph. That would be just fine when life is good until it isn't. 
Because in the process of trying to live out a worldview, inevitably, life is gonna put up a roadblock. And a worldview is only as good as its ability to have a satisfying answer for when life gets hard. Those moments when life gets hard for the people around us, that's when the opportunities will appear. Opportunities orchestrated by God for you to share the hope that you have inside with gentleness and respect. And the Bible has amazing examples of this opportunity. So in the time we have left, I want you to grab your Bible. You can grab a Bible from the seat backs in front of you or grab it on your phone, uh, however you've got it. And I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew, the first book of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 19. And this is an encounter between Jesus, who has been teaching the crowds gathered around him, and a rich young man who has a question. By the way, Scottsdale, you are surrounded by rich people with questions. All right? This is good stuff. This is good stuff. We're going to go chapter 19, starting in verse 16. Matthew chapter 19, verse 16. It says, And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Stop. Boom. There it is. That's a worldview question. That's a great worldview question. What's his worldview? There is a God. He commands certain things as good. I need to do them to earn his favor so I can go to a good place when I die. All right, let's see what Jesus says. Verse 17, and Jesus said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. So Jesus first establishes some context with this guy because he can tell from his question what his worldview is, right? So Jesus hits it up front. Only God is good. By the way, God is exclusively good. That means that all the rest of us are either not good or at least less good. Jesus keeps rolling. Jesus says, if you would enter life, keep the commandments. So Jesus is tracking with this guy's worldview to start. Common ground, right? They both agree that there's a God. They both agree that he dictates what's good, so just do what he says. Just do what he says. Simple, right? But the guy presses him a little bit. Verse 18, he said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, well, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So what are these? Well, this is some of the Ten Commandments, right? Jesus picks some of the Ten Commandments with a love your neighbor in there as well. And what do you notice about the ones that he picks? Because the Ten Commandments are split into two. Commandments one through four are about how to love God. Five through 10 are about how to love people. And Jesus only chooses the love people ones. We're gonna see why in a second. But right now, the rich guy is probably like, yes, yes, I am such a nice guy. I totally nail all those, right? Look, he says, verse 20, the young man says to him, all these I have kept, what do I still lack? Okay, hold on a second. As much as we all like to think that we're really good people, that's not true, all right? It's not true of this guy. It's not true of me. I can't drive on the 101 without having sinful thoughts about other drivers. It's just not true, okay? (laughs) But don't get distracted. Jesus is gonna tie it all together. Verse 21, Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. And when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Incredible. So not only does Jesus use the word perfect to immediately establish that no amount of good works can achieve the perfection of God, but he also goes right to commandments one through four that this guy is struggling with. Those opening commandments say that there is only one God and we should put nothing before him. Yet this guy, this guy walked out knowing that all of his possessions, his stuff, his comfort, the safe little world that he had built up for himself, those things were more important to him than God. He wanted to follow his stuff rather than follow Jesus, and his worldview came up short. 
One more example. Again, in the Bible, turn to Acts chapter 17. This time we're in the first century after Jesus' resurrection with the Apostle Paul. He's in Athens, Greece, and he's been invited, Acts chapter 17, to speak to some of the big thinkers in town. Again, 1 Peter 3.15, always be ready when someone asks you to share the hope. The Bible says these people were Epicureans and Stoics. Basically, they believed the ultimate goal in life was to seek good virtue and avoid pain and suffering at all costs. Sounds pretty good, right? The issue is they also recognize that good and virtue, like somebody had to define those, and so they would put up all these little idols to different gods or goodness and virtues because they weren't quite sure about how to go about that, and they were all over town just to cover all their bases. So let's pick it up. Acts chapter 17, verse 22. Paul's in Athens, and he says, Men of Athens, I perceive in every way you are very religious. Stop a second. What does he do first? Finds common ground, right? Common ground. He recognizes that they recognize that there is some kind of higher power. So common ground is really important. We go on, verse 23. Paul says, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. And there it is. Paul sees their roadblock in their worldview. How do I know what's good if God is unknown? So Paul goes on. Paul says, What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as if he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. All right, wow, Paul jumps in. He says, let me tell you, God is knowable. He's the one who made everything from nothing, and he made you and me. And that feeling that you have that there's something more, God made you that way, all right? So Paul's knocking all these big life questions out of the park, but he goes on. And I love the word he uses is perhaps, right? He said perhaps find your way, because if perhaps we can find out how to be right with God, then what does that imply? Perhaps not, So there's still a roadblock, but Paul's not done yet. It gets better. He continues. He says, yet he, God, is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. So Paul shares some good news. God isn't far off. We can know him, and then Paul brings it home. Verse 29, being then God's offering, offspring, We ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, spoiler alert, that's Jesus, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Boom, there it is. God is knowable. Not only that, but God wants a relationship with you whom he created. These little gods you're trying to figure out, they can't even compare to people, let alone compare to God. And you can have a right relationship with God through this man, Jesus Christ, who, by the way, has the ultimate street cred, he rose from the dead. Paul addresses every bit of their roadblock to demonstrate the power and beauty of the gospel. So what happened? Well, this might sound familiar if you've ever shared your faith with anyone. Uh, Some people weren't so sure. Some people wanted to hear him again. Some people just straight up made fun of him for even believing somebody could raise from the dead. Really? Really? And they just left. But some, some recognized that the answers Paul's worldview provided were true. 
They were complete, they were satisfying, better than the answers that they were trying to find themselves, and they believed. So as we wrap up, I'm gonna bring the band out so that we can worship together at the end of this. I'm gonna say this again. A worldview is only as good as its ability to have a satisfying answer for when life gets hard. And the times when life gets hard for our neighbors is when we have the opportunity to love them by sharing the hope we have in the gospel. An atheist who struggles over the loss of a loved one needs to confront the issue of meaning. If we're simply products of evolution over time, what purpose do we really have? If a relativist whose view says that we need to do the best we can within ourselves might themselves find themselves being left by their spouse who decides that for themselves their happiness is best found in someone else. A materialist might find themselves wealthy beyond all imagination with no limit to the amount of comfort and pleasure they can surround themselves with having achieved all of their goals and yet when they look in the mirror all they see is emptiness. Is this all there is? A person whose politics comes first puts all their hope in the outcome of the next election, right? They've allowed the algorithms of social media to pull them into a reality where only one outcome could possibly happen, and then it doesn't, and it doesn't. And they wonder how they can go on when the world doesn't match these expectations of the lies they allowed to become their foundation or a religious monotheist workspace. They do their best to follow all the rules until in one night of recklessness, they do something they deeply, deeply regret. How will they be able to make it right with God? How many good works are enough to find their way back to his favor? Or you might be a parent, like I was about five years ago, sitting across the table from a doctor who's telling me that my 10-month-old baby girl has cancer in her eye and we need to take immediate action that's gonna cause about six months of physical suffering. Why? Why? One worldview would tell me that it's just an unlucky roll of the evolutionary dice. Sorry. One worldview might tell me that I didn't think positively enough about her future, or that's all I have to do to get out of it. Just think, think positively. One worldview might tell me it's because of some bad deed from my past that I need to atone for. It's my fault. But the Bible, the Bible told me, God's word told me that even though we are in this broken world of sin and disease, the Bible told me in 1 John 3 that God loves her. He loves her more fiercely as his daughter than I as a parent am even capable of. Psalm 139 told me that God created her perfectly, and John 9 told me that he created her for the purpose of revealing his glory through her. It told me that God knows every outcome, every detail, every cell, every millimeter of the medical ocean we are about to enter. It told me that God will not only give me his strength to see my baby girl through it, but he'll also give me his peace in the process. And above all, it told me that even though I am far from perfect, a sinner, God loves my daughter and I so much that he sent his son to suffer and suffer far greater than my daughter ever will on our behalf so that she and I can have life with him forever. Even if the unthinkable would have happened and he would have taken her home right then and there, she and I will have an eternal life where no cancer cell could ever touch her again. Church, I've searched other worldviews. They couldn't fill me. Ultimately, they can't fill anyone. 
We have the hope of all hopes. God's word provides the answers when mankind is left speechless. Our job is to be ready. Just be ready with the hope of the gospel through knowing God's word and through sharing the testimony of what he's done in your life. Will you pray with me? Father God, we are so thankful for your word. God, thank you for providing the answers to life's biggest questions. Father, we know those are things we can't figure out on our own, and yet you wrote them down. You provide them for us to give us hope and eternal security. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, to be the sacrifice on our behalf so that we can have a right relationship with you. Father, we are surrounded by people who are searching for answers. They're lost. They've come up against roadblocks in their lives. And sometimes, Father, we get the privilege of hearing about those. And so we would pray that you would help us as we go out of here this morning to be bold, to open our mouths, to share the hope that we have within us with gentleness and respect. Father, that is so hard. We need your strength. We can't do that on our own. Father, help us to point people towards the hope, the eternal, incredible, amazing hope that we have in you. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. God's people said, amen. So church, will you stand and worship with us together now? Rise to your feet and worship as if God is the only one worthy of our worship because that is the truth. There is nothing better than Jesus Christ. Church, there is nothing better than Jesus. There is nothing better than the hope we have in the gospel. Church, don't fight with other worldviews. Fighting comes from fear and insecurity. We have nothing to fear. We are eternally secure. All right? In the battle for Israel, God sent the musicians in first, and they still won. All right? In his kindness, in his kindness, they won because they worshiped God with all they had. And in his kindness, God offers us the opportunity to share our hope, to share our joy, to share our faith in Jesus Christ to people whose worldviews are struggling against the weight of sin in this world. We can share that hope. So go this week, meet your neighbors, share the hope you have, love them, and share the hope in Jesus Christ. We'll see you next week. Thanks, everybody.